Dan Mack is back, and this year she has sought out the best customer-centric thought leaders from around the world. Are you after practical, accessible, and customer-centric marketing? You're in the right place. Sit back and enjoy Dan's small business podcast. For more information, go to www.daniellemckinnis.com or visit www.mckinnismarketing.com.au. From everyone who reads the book is, one, it's very easy read, which was certainly my focus when I was writing it. I didn't want it to be a textbook. Uh, so one, it's an easy read, and two, people are really liking the concept, so it's good that you, you liked it as well. I did. So can we start with sort of why you actually started to write the book in the first place? Why did I start writing the book in the first place? So before I wrote this book, you know, um, you know, I was a management consultant and I was working mostly on the corporate strategy side with many uh, different clients on the innovation projects. Mm-hmm. And I would help them uh, solve really key innovation challenges and see them, you know, really do well. And then what happened is I started thinking about and I did my own startup. It didn't take off. But again, went back to management consulting, did a couple more innovation projects and they did really well. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about, you know, um, what, what am I, what, what is it, the key um, ingredient, if you will, uh, that is actually uh, making this, making innovation projects that I'm working with my clients work well. And that was basically going back to the customer centricity that I had. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, it's all about customer experience. And let me start thinking about what does it really mean if I kind of get all the knowledge together what does it mean about customer experience? And let me just put it on a blog and see what people think. And that's what I did. I actually kind of blogged about customer experience, put my nine-factor framework through based on all the experience that I had. And then I started getting a lot of good positive response from people. And many of them were like, there's a book in here because this framework is really effective. So you should really start thinking about writing a book. And that's what prompted me to do it. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? And it is yeah. a really um, uh, great complementary of of different factors. Can you sort of take us through each of those nine factors and sort of explain why they came to be in the mix? Definitely, definitely. Again, the the basic foundation on why this customer experience framework even came into being is innovation. It's all about you know how can you innovate and not really waste your money that you put in innovation. So by thinking, by having that kind of a foundation, that kind of a lens, I started thinking about, you know, it's really about customer experience and what experience they get from your product or your service and how innovation is working to kind of deliver that. So what are those key impactful factors that actually make innovation, you know, stand out? And that's where I started coming up with these nine factors. Mm -hmm. The very first one being requirements. You know, again, for for an innovator, uh, uh, if he's going to a customer with a product and if it does not do the job that the customer is trying to do, it's a a Mm non-starter, right? So that's why the very first factor is requirements. Are you meeting my requirements? Are you actually your innovation? Is your innovation helping me do the job that I want to do? That's the, that's the first one. Then the second one becomes price. Price is a, a little complicated factor, but it plays a very good role 
because that's the factor that tells the the uh, innovator as well as the customer whether this is something worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So for customers, the price can be in many different ways, and you know, price basically based on the value that they deliver. For certain customers who are really discount oriented, who really want to have water down price, that kind of a customer segment needs the price customer experience that is totally watered down. Tell me that the price is 100 bucks and give me 80% discount, I'll buy it for 20 bucks. Now they feel happy, like JCPenney customers in the US, they feel happy because of that because they have a sense of saving and that gives them a sense of satisfaction and a better customer experience. Whereas if you move on to the high end and you take an example like, you know, uh, Thermodor appliances here in the U.S., those guys control the price in the market. They don't let any of their dealer discount it at all because they know that their customer segment does not have time to shop. And if they find out that, you know, the dealer next door is selling the same appliances for $1,000 less, they're going to be very unhappy and they're not going to shop Thermador anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's a different kind of an experience for a different kind of a customer segment where they want to make sure that their time is valuable and they don't have to shop around. So that is one kind of an experience. That's a second factor, which is price. The third factor is availability. And it's all about when I need your product to do what I want it to do, is it available? It is available to me. I'm in, a, I'm in a coffee shop somewhere and I want to read news and I have my iPad. Is your new service application available on my iPad so that I can read and still make best use of your new service? If it is, I'm getting good experience on that. If it is not and I'm dwindling my thumb, I'm like, you know, I really should get some other new service because, you know, these guys don't even have an iPad app, mm-hmm. right? So that's on the availability. Is it available when I need it in the environment I need it, right? Mm-hmm. Fourth factor is convenience. It's all about how easy is it for me to use your service or your product? Does it take me five clicks to get the answer I want or is it just one click? Mm. The classic example is Google. You know, when they took off, they took out because compared to every other search engine out there, they just made it convenient. They just made it so easy to use, so easy to find what you want to look for, right? Mm. And hence, they took off. So that's the convenience aspect of it. The next is service support, which is very self-explanatory. It's about if I run into trouble, do I have someone to call? Like Zappos was great in service and support. They could call, you could call and get a live person talking to them at any point of the time, any point of the day, even at past midnight. Mm. And that was a great, that, that company was entirely built on being like the best in service and support. And the next one is quality, which is again very self-explanatory, that if I'm using your product or your service and I have a quality aspect that I expect from you, are you meeting that or not? Mm-hmm. The next one is fashion, which is, you know, many people ignore that. But, you know, right when the cell phones were there way back in, you know, early 2000s, where they were like industrial design brick phones, mm-hmm. right? There, there was no character. There's no fashion statement to that. And Motorola Razr was the first phone that came out with, which was very fashionable. And mm-hmm. people took 
completely undermined the value of fashion when it comes to customer experience. And Motorola Razor taught us that really, no, everything has a fashion aspect to it. It's just that the innovators have not discovered it yet. And since then, phones have been so fashionable altogether, all mm. right? Yeah. So that's the fashion aspect. The next is social responsibility. Now, many of us don't know it, but there's a little socially responsible person in most of our customers. They might or might not weigh it based on different services or the different products they're buying. For some products, they're very, they're extremely social responsibility conscious. For some, they are not. Mm. And that's fine. It's just that you need to know, is your customer segment wanting you to be socially responsible? And by socially responsible, I mean, do they want you to have the right kind of uh, uh, trade agreements, fair trade act, uh, labor laws, or environmentally friendly, and things like that? Mm. And if you do, if your customer segment does that, then you better be best in class on that, right? Otherwise, your customer segment will never buy you. Mm. And the last one is brand, which is the ninth factor. And now this factor is very important. And this factor carries the goods and bads of all other factors combined. This is like your bloodline, if you will. Mm -hmm. Everything that goes good or bad on all the other eight factors, this factor carries it along with it. For B2C customers, it's mostly the brand that they look at, the company brand. Mm -hmm. And it's important for them, the company brand is important for them because they want to be able to trust this company with their financial information, with their contact information, and so on and so forth to be able to do that transaction with them. So it's important for them to know this brand is good and I can trust it. In the B2B equation, it's a little different though. This brand is, the company brand is always important. You know, people always respected IBM for that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, people just didn't buy IBM because it was IBM. People bought IBM because the sales guy that they worked with had a very good reputation and relationship with them and totally convince them that IBM is the way to go. So on the B2B side, it's not just the company brand, but also the relationship that the salesperson has with the customer that comes together as a brand. Mm. Yeah. So, so I guess the question that I was thinking from, you've done this from an innovation point of view of, I imagine... Um, you know, a company picking one or two or multiple of these depending on what the customer needs and amplifying that or focusing on that. Um, from, a, from a customer um, journey or um, satisfaction point of view, I sort of think it also lines up and, and sort of that's what you're saying, you know, that, that, that the um, bloodline or the brand represents a certain experience. And so even though you've got this, the basis of this is, you know, maybe to come out with better innovations, I think it really does. It is a really good tool to use to actually say, well, where am I? And I like how you've got ordinary, subpar and best in class. Can you sort of explain, um, I guess, how people sure. could use this? Because I can say, yes, you could use it when you're starting a new product or service, but you could also use it to test where you are. Exactly, exactly. And then what my research has found that if you are, you can be best in class, average, or subpar on any of these nine factors. Mm -hmm. Best in class is like no one is better than you in delivering the kind of experience customer wants on that factor. Mm 
-hmm. Average is like you're every, like everyone else. Yeah. Everyone else also does the same kind of service and support that you do. So you're average on service and support. And subpar is that you've consciously made a decision that you're not going to invest any time and money on this factor mm. because your customer segment really doesn't care. Like many companies don't, they are not environmentally friendly because not many customer segments are environmentally focused, mm. right? So they can go by without having any environmental statement. So that's, that's being subpar, consciously being subpar on a particular uh, experience, on a particular factor. Now, where the problem happens is like for a customer to actually come and give you their business, they need to get, get best-in-class customer experience from you on at least three factors. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a point of time where it moves the needle for them. You know, if you're just good at requirements, but you don't do anything else, it's not going to cut it. It's going to be a very difficult business case for the customer to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to take my business to this new guy who's just delivered me a new product, which is just meets my requirement. It's very difficult for them to make that decision. Mm. But once, they, once you are best in class on at least three factors, you know, that's where the tipping scale happens and customers start thinking, oh, maybe I should try them and maybe I should see what they have to offer. Yeah, it's sort of almost like it's, then, it's visible yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. And then between three to five factors, you're still doing good. You know, you are working hard and keeping your customers with you. But once you start delivering more than five factors or best-in-class customer experience on more than five factors, the innovators are actually not taking much money home. Because they're spending everything that they're earning on de delivering best-in-class customer experience. Mm -hmm. The customers would love it. They would love to have best-in-class customer experience on all nine factors. But it is financially not feasible for a company to deliver best-in-class customer experience on anything more than five. Mm -hmm. so, what, so what happens is, in today's world, and I'll give you an example, my favorite example of Blockbuster and Netflix. Mm -hmm. Blockbuster was a billion, multi-billion dollar giant in the movie rental business here in the U.S., and they would, their whole proposition was that we are cheaper than you going to the movies and watching the movie. Because if you're a family of five, it's going to cost you a lot of money to go watch that movie. Whereas with Blockbuster, you can rent the movie out for a buck or two. Mm -hmm. We are very convenient for you because, you know, 70% of the U.S. homes were about 10 minutes drive away from a Blockbuster show, store. Mm -hmm. so they're like, hey, drive up 10 minutes, pick a movie, very convenient. Right. Mm -hmm. You might drive much longer to go to a theater, but you will drive shorter distances to come pick up a movie at Blockbuster. And then we will have the movie that you want, because we have done all analysis to make sure that whatever movies are famous in a particular locality, we have that. Mm -hmm. And we like have copies of it. So that's how Blockbuster really came to being and, you know, really grew very well. Right, as, they, as it kept growing, that's how it kind of created a position of strength. Now, what they were doing wrong was that there were long lines at the stores. There was frequent movie stockouts. And the overall experience, like though they said it's only 10 minutes away, it took upwards of 40 plus minutes for a customer to go to a blockbuster store, rent movie out and come back home on a Friday night, which is the night when people watch movies. Mm. And plus... If you don't return the movie within 24 hours, 
you get charged late fees, which is twice the amount that you know you would actually pay for a regular rental. And in fact, at its peak, Blockbuster made more than $700 million a year just on late fees. Wow. $700 million. Wow. Now, that's a lot of unhappy customers that they had. Mm. And once Reed Hastings got charged 40 bucks of late fees, he pretty much decided that this needs to stop. While every other customer was not happy about the late fees or the convenience aspect of it, Reed Hastings said, you know, this has to stop. And he went in and started Netflix, where he would actually ship the DVD to the customer's home. So they don't even have to get out of their house. He had algorithms which would actually search the movie that the customer likes based on the past history of what they've seen. And then he had a flat fee, $17.99 per month, how much ever movies you want to watch. And he innovated everything in his company to kind of support this kind of experience where it's going to be extremely convenient, best in class and convenience for you for, as a customer to rent a movie from us. And it's going to be best in class and price. You just pay one price, $17.99 per month, no matter how many movies we want to watch. There's no late fee. You can keep a movie for as long as you want. Now, all the customers are frustrated with blockbusters. Blockbuster immediately you know, went to Netflix and they got their better customer experience from them. And eventually, I think 10 years after Netflix started, Blockbuster, which was a multi-billion dollar giant before Netflix came in, went bankrupt. Mm. Just because their customer experience and the customer experience their sec customer segment wanted did not match up. So it makes, right? it makes a lot of sense in terms of listening to the customers because I'm just thinking of the banks. You know, They're often in this position where they could make the right call, but if they're making money out of it, it takes mm -hmm. you know it takes a a lot to sort of turn off that that funnel of money and actually think about the customers. But the ones that do, um, you know, have got a good opportunity to you know to align themselves to a different value proposition. Exactly, and the good thing about this is that customers have changing taste all the time. If you're giving them a certain customer experience today that they did not have before, they're very happy about it, that's great. But in certain amount of time, that experience becomes the norm for them. And they're looking for something more. And if when companies kind of become big and they start losing the, you know, they start losing touch with the customer and they still keep going back to their original books and saying, this is why we are a big company because customers loved what we did. Well, customer has moved on. They want more now. They want something different now. And a company that comes in and offers that something different has a chance of you know, beating that incumbent, if you will. Mm. And that's the most interesting part of this is, you know, does not matter which industry it is. Innovators can still break in and make it big just by focusing on how the customer tastes have changed. What is different that they want now, given that they already have what they have? Yeah. And how is it they can innovate, the innovators can innovate to deliver that? So can you tell us a little bit about um, the customer knowledge chasm? Because you talk about this in the book, mm -hmm. and I thought that was really interesting, particularly when a lot of this knowledge is now in the hands of customers. You know, we actually have access to so much more information. Exactly. So if you ever go to a customer 
and present these nine frame factors to them and ask them, which one do you want to, us to be best in class at? The immediate response they'll give is, we want you to be best in class on all nine. <laughs> right? And more. Yeah. Right? Because the customer and, and many people actually go and build a product based off of that and go to the market and say, hey, can you pay me money for this? And the customer's like, I don't want that. I don't care about it. Just because when you're asking a customer, they're just in their mind, they're thinking, I want everything. Yeah. But they are not able to rationally figure out what is it that they really want. And special, specifically when you're talking about, do you want this product and what your requirements of this product are, they would give you, you know, really grandiose requirements, which they don't even need because they don't know what they want. They only know it when they see it, mm. right? And then when they experience it. And that's the customer knowledge chasm. The customer knowledge chasm basically hunkers down the customer based on their current experiences and tells them everything that they inform you is around what they currently have, not about what they would need in the future. They don't know that. Yeah. So the best way to kind of cross that chasm is not to ask the customer on what kind of experience they need on these nine factors, but to rather focus on what is it that the customers are trying to get done? What is it, that, what is it what is the job they're trying to get done? Based on that, observing them doing what they're trying to do, and then inferring from that, that if they want convenience, or do they want availability, or do they want quality or fashion, what is it that they want? inferring from what the customer is doing. Yeah. And that's what smart innovators do. They really understand their customers and what they do, how they do it. And based on that, they infer it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that the disconnect is that we're just not listening to our customers enough and, and then mm -hmm. using a model to, I mean, this model makes sense because it does touch on all the different needs. But I really like the idea of, you know, what are you trying to solve or what problem do they have? And, and, yeah. and, and yeah, it's in the doing. What are they trying to achieve? I think that that's really a great um, well, viewpoint to take. And, and just, just not listening but really understanding, mm. right? Because there are many people who tell me that, oh, I talk to my customer all the time and they tell me this. I'm like, okay, they tell you this, but why? Mm. Why do they need this? What is it that they're trying to do that they need this? And once you start digging a little bit more, understanding what they're trying to do, then you really realize that what they need is not this, but something else. Mm. Right? So, so have you had any companies that you know of that have used this model to sort of innovate um, their business? Yeah, so there are quite a few companies that have done that. Many don't know that they're doing it that way. Yeah. But I've given you an example of Netflix, which basically knew that it has to be make it has to make it more convenient for the customers to come in and buy, uh, you know, rent movies from them, mm -hmm. and it had to be best in class on price, to make sure that you know uh, there's a flat fee, and then they have to meet all the requirements by stocking in all the movies. They went in, became best in class on these three factors, and you know, really one of our customers. That's one. But I would like to actually, and there are many more in my book, I have about 30 plus examples of, from many different industries, both B2B and B2C companies 
that have actually done this and have won one customers big time. Mm-hmm. But one specific example I want to highlight is of Sonosite. Now, Sonosite was this little division, not even a company. It was a little division working on handheld, hand-carried ultrasound units in a bigger company called ATL. And ATL used to make all ultra, all different types of ultrasound um, units. Mm-hmm. This was a little division in there. And they were innovative, they were good, and they actually you know, had the requirements from the Navy saying that they wanted this kind of an equipment. So they actually met the requirements and made a hand-carried ultrasound. Now what happened is, though, though the DARPA requirements were all met and they, they had a happy customer there, ATL was trying to get, get sold. And it was talking to Philips about, you know, all the things, that, all the assets it had and why Philips should buy it. Now, Philips looked at this little division and said, you know what, this hand carried ultrasound is not going to work for us because the radiologist would hate it. It's as if, you know, you're going to steal their bread. Mm-hmm. The radiologists want the big equipment in that room so that, you know, no one else can get ultrasound without coming to the radiologist and in that room. Mm-hmm. So let this division go away. Let's pin it off, do something with it or shut it down and we'll buy you. Mm-hmm. So ATL did that. They actually spun off Sonosite as a completely different company and then got sold. They themselves got sold to Philips. Now, when they went to the radiologist, Sonosite, radiologists didn't like it. They're like, no way. Because if we let a little laptop size ultrasound unit get into the market, we, you know, every doctor will start using it. Mm-hmm. And so easy to use, you know, they'll be, we, we as a specialty won't exist. So no way, we're not going to let this happen. So then they started finding out other customer segments who would use this. And the first one they found was doctors who are actually inserting the central line um, and basically delivering all the medicines into the veins. Those doctors did not have a kind of a GPS, if you will, to figure out where the veins are. And using this ultrasound, they were able to figure it out and they were able to insert the, you know, the line into the uh, right vein without actually puncturing the lungs or creating, you know, creating the risk of pneumothorax. That was amazing for them. Mm. And so what they did is immediately they started buying a lot of these hand-carried ultrasounds in the hospitals and this business took off. And today, the whole category, the hand-carried ultrasound category itself, is about 20% of the ultrasound market. Something that the main customer of that market did not even want to come into the market, right? It's 20%. And Philips was in the race to buy Sonosite for close to a billion dollars when it was up for sale. So it's it's amazing. It's very powerful on what focusing on a customer and delivering the right customer experience can do for you. It certainly sounds it. So have so what are you working on now? Are you um, involved with this sort of approach? So you've moved from what you were doing. Can you give yes, us some I insights? Am. Yeah. Yes, I am. I'm the I'm the vice president of products at a company called Anvia, mm-hmm. where it's it's all about government leads and serving government leads to our customers. And what I have found already is this, you know, uh, what we I can do in terms of using this approach. And bringing in focus within the company to say this is the kind of customer experience our customers want and being able to innovate and deliver that kind of a customer experience. 
So I'm already working on those things and making sure those things tie up. It's pretty exciting. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter what company you are in. Um, consumer focused or a business focused or software or a hardware or financials or mobile telecom, whatnot. You can focus on what the customers really need and innovate and, you know, really do well. Absolutely. Well, it's a great book, The Shift, and I will put a link to it on my podcast and blog. And I really appreciate your time. It's um, it's such an interesting space. And I found that your um, model was really comprehensive. And it certainly gives you a lot to think about, whether, whether you're going back and re-engineering what you've got or whether you're starting from scratch. I think it's a great place to start. So, so thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Dan. This was, this was really great. Hey, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. For more great marketing tips, go to Dan's blog at www.daniellemcginnis.com and sign up for her marketing tips or visit her website at www.mcginnismarketing.com.au. Catch you next time. Thank you.